Our scripture reading today is Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who do does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you are workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Christ. Thank you, Maddie. Well, I'm thankful to be able to teach you this morning, and, um, but I'm very humbled by this passage. And uh, I think I mentioned this last week as we've been looking on the Sermon on the Mount and unpacking it. The intensity of Jesus' sermon continues. And Sermon on the Mount, if you're unfamiliar, is uh, from a large chunk of Matthew chapter 5 through 7 in, uh, in the first book of the New Testament. Matthew himself recorded this. And it's an interesting thing because Jesus begins in the sermon by saying very practical things. So we've kind of looked at a lot of those. How do we deal with money? How do we deal with sexuality? How do we deal with things that are... Uh, that we sh should show what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And then he kind of, in the next chapter, chapter six, kind of unfolds a little bit more about that, but by saying, be careful being a hypocrite. Don't try and show your righteousness or your working for God and thinking that that's the way that it works. But then he gets to this section. And last week, we kind of opened the door to that, where it's, really a scary thing because Jesus says, do you really think you're a follower of, of mine? You really want to know what it means to follow me? You know, there was a, a movie made on this, but there's a story, historical story about uh, a man named Frank Abagnale Jr. And uh, many of you may have seen this story. It's called Catch Me If You Can. Uh, I'm sure some of the accounts are uh, a little uh, <clears throat> brought out, but the essence of the story is it was a 16-year-old boy who kind of ran away from home in a sense and began um, forging, by the time he was 21, he had forged over $2 million in checks. And he had created this whole world for himself. He had actually um, uh, faked being a pilot and flew on countless miles as a pilot in even the cockpit at the time. Uh, he had uh, faked being a doctor and was even over a group of nurses and uh, trying to run a healthcare system with no knowledge of healthcare at all. And then finally even uh, became a lawyer, so to speak. And all in which, and you see, if you watch the movie, the film itself, it, it really what it draws out more, it plays up more, is what he was running from, his relationship to his family. His parents had a rough, rocky relationship, had ended up separating and being divorced and his whole time and there's a scene when he's dressed in his pilot's uniform and he sits with his father at a bar and you can see him saying look I've made it I'm I've done it can't you and mom come back together and you kind of get this gist that he has been all this time working hard at being playing these roles in order to have this relationship again, in order to have this whole relationship with he and his family once again. And his dad with just a cold face, almost uh, as if he's kind of lost all connection to reality, 
says, I'm proud of you, son, but I don't really, I don't really see that happening. Uh, I, I can't make it. And I find that story to be very powerful in, in the sense of taking on the roles that we do in order for us to have relationship. I mean, it's really a basic ideal is that Frank Abagnale Jr., it wasn't until actually the FBI agent that tracked him down and then he began working for the FBI and was kind of revealed for who he really was as a fraud and was known that he actually had relationships. It's kind of a counterintuitive thought. And yet, when he had posed at the th- as the things that we would hold up the most esteemed, as a doctor, a lawyer, and these kind of professions that are so profound, yet he was completely hollow. This passage that Jesus says should scare us. It, it really should. It should frighten us. It should make us say, what does it really mean to follow him? When he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, what does that mean after he's already just unpacked doing the will of God? What does that look like? Are we living a role? Are we finding ourselves in order to gain relationship with God and maybe even others, putting on a uniform, putting on what we think will make it whole? And yet, it is hollow completely. What's scary about this is we'll unpack is that he says in here that even people who, like me, who are teaching the word of God, who are doing mighty works and using Jesus' name, may not even enter the kingdom of heaven. How do we know that we enter? It should cause us to have silence. It should cause us to reflect. I think we need to look at this about basing our relationship with Jesus on two things from this passage. What does it mean to really love him? And what does it really mean to live for him? Because that's what Jesus is drawing out. What does it really mean to love him and live for him? Very simple, but very profound in the fact that Jesus is saying, do we really know him? Or do we just put on an act? trying to gain relationship when we don't know it. So, you know, the beginning of this, do we really, you know, it, it, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 the reason he uses that, and he says it twice in here, verse 21 and 22. Anytime you use a name twice in the Bible, it was speaking of intimacy. It's a term of saying, I really know you. I'm really close to you. And it's a really profound thing that Jesus says that, not just once, but twice. He's wanting us to get the idea that there are many of us who may have an emotional and experiential thought that we are connected to Jesus and yet we don't know him at all. That there's somewhat of an intimacy, but not a true intimacy. That do we really know him? Or, 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 or is it, do we just know a lot about him? There was a book uh, written some time ago by a man named J.I. Packer. It was called Knowing God. And one of the first premises in the book was you can know a lot about him and not know him at all. Many of us know that in, in relationships in general. There are many people that we may be friends with and sometimes you may stop and you go, why do I feel distance with this person? Have you ever thought maybe, or maybe it, it's you or that person, that they know a lot about you, but don't know really the depths of who you are? 
They don't know the intimacy that really is. They may have the same kind of conversations with you. You may know where they live. You may interact and even share space, even help out, even do things in life together, but may not know that life. That is the same with God. That's what Jesus is saying. We can know and act as though we have deep intimacy by the things that we're a part of, the words we use. And that's the scary thing sometimes about living in, in, in an area, particularly in Southern culture, we have phrases and things that we use that kind of say, oh yeah, I know God, I know God, I know God, but do we really know him? Are we really close to him? A little bit of history, where some of this I think comes from is there was a thing called the Second Great Awakening. And in that time period in the early 20th century, when religion was burgeoning in the United States and was moving further in, there was a real push towards emotionalism. A push for people to start thinking that if I feel close to God, then I am. They would actually do something that was called the anxious bench. We will not do this here today. They would do an anxious bench where they would play a song over and over and over and over and over until people felt stirred in their seats and would stand up and come forward to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Now, it's not to say that feelings aren't a part of our relationship to God. But what I feel and I see often and I think that we do in our conversations is that we actually attach our relationship to God by how we're feeling more than who he is. Many of us have countless relationships in this room, whether we're married, whether we're single, we have those relationships where we actually are close to someone and there are days we may not feel close to them, but are we still friends with them? Are we still married? You see, it's interesting how much we put on that because it's a massive issue. And it's not one that, that has been around just for a, you know, a, a few years. It's been a one, one that's been around for centuries. There's a, 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 a huge theologian that said this at some point. He is, wrote a book called God's Way of Peace, Feeling Like a Christian, How We Feel Like One. Listen to this. and It's very palpable to me. For if you are looking not at the object of your faith, at Jesus, but at your faith, you would draw your comfort not from him, but from your faith. And because your faith is not quite perfect, you are as much discouraged as if Jesus was not quite a perfect savior. What then? No doubt you will then rest in it and upon it, satisfied now that Jesus is yours because you are satisfied with your faith. This is making Jesus, uh, making uh, a Jesus of it, uh, making a Jesus of your faith and in effect taking the crown of crowns from Jesus' head and placing it upon your own faith. In other words, what this theologian is saying is oftentimes, instead of looking to Jesus himself for the intimacy, we look at how we feel, where we are, checking our list of thinking that because we're in church, because we've spent time in quiet, because we pray, we think that that equals relationship with God. That is putting the crown off Jesus' head onto our faith. And we have to be very, very careful with that. Because we can think we're having deep, loving, committed union with Jesus and not at all. 
I've been reading a book that's really been punching my gut about this. And uh, reading, especially as, as someone who's supposed to be talking about these things and to you, just know that God has not let me off this hook at all this week. Uh, sitting in this passage has caused turmoil in my soul to say, hey, am I doing a lot of ministry activity or am I really with my Savior? One of the books I've been reading, I've mentioned it to you, but I, I would mention it again. It's called uh, um, uh, The Healthy, uh, Spiritual Healthy uh, Leader and uh, Emotionally Healthy Leader, written by a guy named Peter Scazzaro. He's actually a, a, a pastor in New York City. He talks about this in terms of giving complete access to God and what that really means for us to have union with Jesus, means for us to say, Jesus, I want you to have access to all the parts of me, not just the spiritual parts, but all of them. I found this interesting. Let me give you an illustration of this. I found this interesting when I was a campus minister and I continued to talk to campus ministers that when I would do certain things on a deeply academic campus, I would find oftentimes when I would interact with students about spiritual things, they would want to check their brain at the door. And so there was this division between really engaging with who they are with Jesus and kind of this, you know, other, almost another life. Like there's my school life, here's this life. It's, it's interesting that if you look at this passage and do a, a search, there's oftentimes this illustration of a door that we're on the outside of a door and we're saying, Lord, Lord, let me in. That is in, in many other passages that are connected to this one. And why does Jesus use that? Oftentimes the illustration of being on the other side of the door was connected actually in other ways in the Bible to a bride or a groom saying, let me in. It was an intimate picture. And yet it was, why should I let you in? What is the basis for that? What is the basis for this relationship? What is the basis for this marriage that I have with you? And it's interesting because what Jesus is getting at is we can oftentimes stand there, knock, and say, but I'm close to you because I read my Bible. Because I cast out demons. Because I've done mighty works. I mean, notice the things that are listed here, and yet the intimacy that's connected to it. There's this emotional connection because we've experienced these things, but yet Jesus is saying, no, that is not the connection to me, because we do things doesn't mean we are something. And it's a very powerful thing to understand. You know, um, it's an article I read often from my own heart. Um, Tim Keller, an, another pastor who's in New York City, wrote years ago. It's a, I mean, gosh, ages ago. And it's one that I read often because I need it. Um, and it was considered this, ministry can be dangerous to your spiritual health. Listen to this article, just an excerpt. The terrible danger is that we can look to our ministry activity as evidence that God is with us or as a way to earn God's favor and prove ourselves. If our heart remembers the gospel and is rejoicing in our justification and adoption, then our ministry is done as a sacrifice and thanksgiving and the result will be that our ministry is done in love. Then our <clears throat> humility, patience, and tenderness. 
but our heart may be continuing to do the same self-justification it has always done, seeking to control God and others by earning and proving our worth through our ministry performance. And then when this is the case, there will be the telltale signs of impatience, irritability, pride, hurt feelings, jealousy, boasting, we will identify with our ministry and make it an extension of ourselves. We will be driven, scared, and either too timid or too brash until we see what we are doing. And perhaps away from the public glare, there may be a secret sins. It all shows that the ministry performance is exhausting and a cover for either of two forms of pride or despair. That should really cause us to look at what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you could be gifted, you could have skills, you can be so set up in terms of your week and the way that you schedule your relationship with God, but yet not have a relationship to him at all. How easy it is for us to put our performance on the throne, our performance of our faith, our performance of our activity, and not look to Jesus himself. I think it's profound in this article to say, do you see the telltale signs of that? Do you see more irritability? Do you see you know, your prayer life tanking? And prayer isn't just a discipline, it's actually a connection, it's a communication with Jesus. This is what he's getting at and he has to say these things because it is so easy for us to swap those things. It's an easy pickpocket. It's an easy way for us to, to think we're going one way and all of a sudden our relationship is gone. How are we relating to him? Do we really love him? Or do we love the activity around him? Or do we love the experience that it gives us? Look, our obedience should drive from our love to him. You know what Jesus said to his disciples in John? One of the most intimate moments when he was with his disciples in John chapter 14 to 17. It even is a, some of you may know this chapter. It says the high priestly prayers at the end when Jesus prays for us. It actually says, if you love me, you will do what I command. Guys, we need to think about that. If you love me, you will do what I command. He's not saying you prove your love in doing. It's that it flowers from your love. Like any relationship you should have, if you really love someone, if you really care for them, if you're really a deep friend to them, isn't there an outworking and a pouring out of actual reality in your life from that? If there's not, shouldn't we ask, do we actually know what it means to be a friend or have friends? Is there mess involved or is it simply us saying one thing, being a part of it and not really knowing him? Because loving him drives us to live for him. You notice that false intimacy and he says, Lord, Lord, is connected to prophesying in his name speaking the word of God and using his name, casting out demons. What a fascinating thing. We'll talk about that. 
and doing mighty works. And then he says, I never knew you. He's saying all the time that in this life, how are they actually living for Jesus and doing things in his name and yet not knowing him? The key here is this word, doing the will of my father in heaven. And then the other part, you are workers of lawlessness. What does it mean to work in the law and be doing God's will? What does that mean? Because it could be easy for us to mistake that. It means this, are we more than simply hearers of the word, but are we doers of the word? Are we actually taking the Bible and is it actually becoming something we're doing? Or are we just hearing it? Are we just listening to it and saying, that's, that works, that's good, but are we, are, are we, are we doing it? Are we hearing it? Oftentimes we go for the big experience. Notice the things that he mentioned here. One is a very orthodox thing, right? Speaking the Bible, right? Another thing seems really out there maybe to us, the demons, right? Casting out demons. The other one is all sorts of works, mighty works in your name. That could mean a million different things. Here's what's interesting. Have you ever thought about the demons themselves? Why does Jesus use that? In another passage, it talks about the demons and what they do. Did you ever think about that demons actually believe Jesus? They actually think Jesus, they know that Jesus is the son of God. Whether you're here and you believe in all of demons or not, the passage, passages in the New Testament where Jesus is most present, there is more spiritual activity and demons and evil that is spoken, and yet the demons themselves believe that there's a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. They believe in the Trinity. They believe that there's all sorts of great works that Jesus is doing, but here, what's the difference between the demons and others? Is they're following him. Is there obedience? They believe the greatest of doctrine, and yet they don't follow. What a very stark image for us that that kind of evil exists and yet believes even more maybe than we do and yet are we following Jesus in the way that we live it out? An article that was written some time ago that was a great picture of what it means for us to live this out. What does it mean for us to be faithful followers of Jesus living this? was written, it was called The Business at Hand. Listen, listen to what this article said. We're constantly driving people to make a big splash, doing a big, uh, some sort of big spiritual thing. Once or twice a year, a group, and this was written uh, about uh, certain um, uh, 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 campus ministry type deals. Once or twice a year, a group comes along with a plan to take the, the campus by storm. There's always a lot of noise and clamor, a lot of labor and money spent for a moment. And then they look up to see what's going on. As quickly as it appears, it disappears. Some get excited, want to make more noise. But for the most part, the noise fades and people go back to the business at hand. The ministry of presence doesn't sell well. Here's the difference. It's a little hard to measure. We're not even sure what it looks like ourselves. It requires dogged obedience and robust prayer. It's quiet. But this is what it means to know God. When we think about evangelism, discipleship, living out the gospel, we should think about meeting people where they live in the business at hand. There we will find great struggles and messes. 
And there we will see the transforming graces of Christ. Many Christians will never notice or recognize this as ministry because it makes so little noise. So what? God brings extraordinary things out of the ordinary. God uses us and works in us, not in these grandeur ways. Notice the things that he even talked about. Mighty works, casting out demons, things that everybody can see, things that sound so powerful. What is following Jesus about? Simple, quiet obedience. It's looking back to the very beginning of even his sermon and saying, how is my heart plunged to the depths and the inventory of who I am known by him so that I can actually wrestle with things that are in me? about money, about anger, about lust, about all those things that he draws out. But notice again, it's not about making a big splash in activity that shows that I'm doing those things. It's sometimes not even being seen. Sometimes it's just at a coffee shop sharing. And you're sharpening one another in terms of encouragement. Notice the song that we sang earlier. I thought it was really profound that It said, we sang this song, I can't remember the title, but it said, what a false friend Jesus would be if he did not show us our own sin. That's a really fantastic line and a really not fun one, if we were being honest. You see, because the Christian life to follow him means that we, yes, Jesus says, come as you are. As I heard one of my friends say this many years ago, he said, Christianity is a come-as-you-are party, but it is not a stay-as-you-are party. Do we see ourselves more transformed than we were before? Do we see ourselves seeing into the mirror of our lives and noticing that Jesus has done a great work? Do we see that? because he loves us so much because he came and did this work and did the work that we cannot, that we can do nothing but work and follow what he says. Not the things that we think connect us to him, but because we are connected to him, we live out the gospel, hearing and doing. If you do a study on this, about what it means to live in God, what it means to do his will, to do the will of his father, It's always connecting hearing versus doing. In fact, James, in chapter one of James, he draws this out by using this image. Listen to this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And for he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. How many of us think of God's word and the law itself like a law of liberty? (laughs) We tend to look at the Bible and the law as something that's shackled, but it's actually saying it's liberty. It's to free us. It's to expose us. When I grew up in a house in Dallas, Years ago, it was one of those homes that was built in the 60s. And and there was one wall in this house that was completely made of mirrors. Even my parents' bedroom door was part of the mirror. It was kind of weird. It was the worst house. We never played uh, hide-and-go-seek in my house. It was the worst house to do that because you could never hide. 
Literally, you would be in this room and you say, you're there, you're there, you're hiding over there. You, know, you, could, you could not be without exposure in this weird, and, and also it was horrible as, as a child because the door was a mirror. And so at night, if I needed my parents, I always had to like go like this and feel the mirror, like everything was reflective. It was the worst, who built this house? It was like mean people. But th- that's actually a, in, the illustration that James is using is to say, How do we go to this mirror and see our true reflection and remember who we are? That we need to go to God and learn and grow and be in him. That we are in him that causes us to live out in obedience. Look, coming to this table is a huge deal and here's why it is. Because this isn't a table that's meant for us to talk about what I've earned. This isn't a table where we kind of think because we take this table, we have relationship with Jesus. It's actually the opposite. It's called the means of grace. This is one of those places, church, prayer, reading scripture, taking communion are called the means of grace. They're the means by which we grow in Christ. But oftentimes we can come to this table and call it an ends of grace, we can look at this table and think, this is, this is my ticket. <clears throat> Jesus invites us to this table, not because this saves you, but because you, you can't wait to come eat with him. It's a meal like you have with so many people in your life. You see on your calendar and you go, I can't wait to have lunch with that person. I can't wait to have dinner with that group. That feeling you get, why? Not because the meal says you're friends, but because you're so in great relationship with that person or people that you can't wait to sit your legs under that table and share that meal with them. That is this meal. Jesus calls you to this table to say, this is for those of you, if you love me, take of this table This doesn't mean perfection. That's not what Jesus was getting at. Remember, he says at the beginning, there's no way you can be perfected by your own work. This is because he said it is finished and that frees you to live in obedience to follow him. We come to this table because he said it, not me. I didn't set this table. I could never set this table. I don't have any works in me that could do that. But I come to this table and say, Jesus, when I taste that wine, when I taste that bread, renew me again. Make me live for you. You want to really show Nashville what it means to be a Christian? Is your character changing? Do you see yourself dealing with your irritability more? Your defensiveness more? Your anger? Your care? Your love, is it changing and growing because you're in him, not because you're just doing activity? With that, let's stand together.